Sunday school. The uh, fires around here in Southern California. Thank you for your prayers. I think many of you saw my email about it. The Lord has been gracious. A lot of the winds that they had anticipated that would are going to really amplify the fires did not materialize. It was a lot less windy than normal. The fires did spread a little bit, but at this point, at least according to the news, many of the fires are more contained. A lot of the ones that were directly threatening sections of LA have been have been contained or, or, or much more contained. Fires are still burning though, so um, that is something to, to continue to keep in mind. People have been evacuated. Many people have lost their homes or their other buildings. So it is still still a, a great tragedy to have these fires. There was also one confirmed fatality, but the Lord was gracious. It was a lot, uh, it could have been a lot worse, or at least up to this point, it could have been a lot worse. So I do thank you for your prayers. I believe the Lord heard your prayers. We begin a new quarter of our Answers Bible curriculum today. We're in the third year of the curriculum. This is quarter three, and our new theme is The Church Begins. That's pretty descriptive of what we're going to be looking at. Here's a breakdown of the coming lessons. Roughly the first half of this quarter, our first six lessons or so, is going to be focused on the end of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. We'll talk about his death. We'll talk about his resurrection. And then in the second half of this quarter, we're going to talk about the beginning of the church, which is exactly what our theme is called. We're going to be moving into the book of Acts, and we'll see how uh, the church begins and eventually starts going, the gospel starts going to the Gentiles. But today we are talking about Jesus' final Passover and betrayal. Now, every gospel account, the four gospels we have, they focus a lot on the, the final part of Jesus' life, the crucifixion, the things leading up to it, his death and resurrection. It's a critical part of the gospel, um, the gospel that we share. And so it makes sense that they, the writers put a lot of emphasis in it. So we really want to pay attention to these accounts. They may be more familiar to us, but as always, we want to come at them with fresh eyes because when we think we know the stories or we can stop paying attention to them and stop appreciating just how significant they are. We're going to talk a lot today specifically about the Lord's Supper, which is an ordinance we practice all the time, but one that because of familiarity, we can forget just how significant it is, just how significant uh, the declarations that Jesus was making when he first inaugurated the Lord's Supper. So let's come at this passage with full attention, wanting to know exactly what our Lord was communicating in his word through the gospel writers and through Jesus inaugurating this ordinance for the church. Let's pray. My God, our God, thank you for your provision every day. I thank you for the church, for Calvary. I pray that you'd build up the people and help me to be able to explain your word well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This is where we're going to have our main text today. Each one of the Gospels has something to say about this element of uh, the crucifixion account, but we're going to focus on Matthew's account with sprinkling in a little bit of details from the other Gospels. We're going to be looking at Matthew 26, 20 to 30, but just let's set the context. I'm at the end of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. Opposition to Messiah has peaked as well as expe uh, messianic expectations among the people. Jesus has told his disciples a number of times that He's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over, he's going to be put to death, 
but he is going to rise again three days later. When he comes into Jerusalem, the common people herald him as Messiah. He has a triumphal entry. They're all saying Hosanna. They're saying save now. They're expecting him to set up a new kingdom and to get rid of the Romans. But Jesus, for his part, he actually prophesies judgment against the city. He tells the people, your house has left you desolate. Next time you see me, or you won't see me until next time you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus cleanses the temple again, just like he did at the beginning of his ministry. He has a number of verbal exchanges with the religious leaders who are trying to discredit him. But Jesus shows himself to be totally able to answer, answer any of their questions and to pose questions that they cannot answer. After leaving the temple, Jesus has a lengthy discourse in which he describes to his disciples what's going to happen in the future. These things include the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The nation of Israel is going to be judged. But also, Jesus' disciples are going to be witnesses, witnesses of him throughout the whole world. And then eventually there's going to be tribulation and judgment, and then Jesus will come again. But he tells his disciples, be faithful until I come. And if you are, and really for all those who would follow Jesus afterwards, you will be rewarded. This brings us to the beginning of chapter 26. By the way, that discourse is known as the Olivet Discourse. But this brings us to the beginning of chapter 26. A couple of things happened in the beginning of the chapter that we also want to keep in mind. First, in chapter 26, verses 1 to 5, the religious leaders determined that they must destroy Jesus. In verses 6 to 13, we have a flashback to something that took place at the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week, and that is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anoints Jesus with costly and fragrant perfume. When Jesus or when Mary did this, the disciples actually complained, Judas Iscariot leading the complaint, that she was wasting the money that she could have given to the poor by just pouring this really expensive perfume on Jesus. Jesus actually commended what she did, and he said, This is actually in preparation for my burial. Then in chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, and this this is probably the reason why the anointing was recounted right before. We hear about Judas Iscariot going to meet with the chief priests. And he asks them, how much will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? And they were glad to hear this, and they offer him 30 pieces of silver. Now, some of you may know, what is significant about the price of 30 pieces of silver? It is the price of a slave, according to the law. If we go back to Exodus 21.32... Exodus 21.32 says this, If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So, this is the same price, according to law, that you would compensate a master if you had accidentally killed his slave. This is the price that was being offered for Jesus, the Messiah. Interesting, this price also appears in another place in the Old Testament significantly, and that's Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the prophets when uh, Israel is returning from exile. And in Zechariah 11, Zechariah is acting as a symbol for 
what Messiah will do in the future. Zechariah is acting as a shepherd to Israel, but it's not going well. He's trying to shepherd the people, but the people are being very stubborn. And eventually Zechariah says, I, I quit. And Zechariah 11, 12 to 13, this is what he says to them, or this is what Zechariah's prophecy says. This is very poignant. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13. Zechariah says, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So he's asking the people, whatever you people think I deserve to be paid, give it to me. And the verse continues. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. This is next, verse 13. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. This is very interesting, what Zechariah records. First of all, because of, you may already be noting, connections to what happens to Jesus. There's this thing about the potter and the house of the Lord and 30 shekels of silver, which are all, which are all details that reappear in what happens with Judas Iscariot. But more poignant is what God's comment is on all of this. Zechariah says, give me my wages. But God says the one who's really being valued at 30 pieces of silver is whom? It's God himself. He says, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And notice that's incredible sarcasm from the Lord, from our God, that magnificent price. You know, 30 pieces of silver, I mean, that's not pennies, but that's hardly, that's hardly a valuable sum. And yet this is what Judas agrees with the chief priests to betray Jesus. He agrees to betray Jesus for that price. Back in Matthew chapter 26, it says Judas begins looking for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. Then right before our passage, in verses 17 and 19, Jesus tells certain disciples to make preparations for the Passover. He tells them to follow a certain man in Jerusalem, follow that man into a certain house, and then ask the owner of that house to have the guest room prepared, which is what they do. So Passover is uh, about to take place. It's Thursday evening. Jesus travels to this room with his 12 disciples. The 13 of them are there. And let's now read our text, Matthew 26, verses 20 to 30. Here's what it says. Now an evening came. Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many 
for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is maybe a little bit smaller section than we normally take in our Sunday school lessons, but very packed with important things for us to analyze. So let's follow our study process, observe, interpret, apply, starting with observations. Notice verse 20. It says that the disciples were reclining in the room. Now, when we talk about reclining, we need the proper image of what this Passover scene actually looks like. Think about it in your own mind. What you picture with, the, with this Last Supper of Jesus. Likely, if not now, earlier in your life, you have thought of this scene the way it's commonly depicted in religious paintings. There's a table, the disciples are all sitting in a bunch of chairs, they all have their own individual plates. This is the way that we might eat the Last Supper, but this is not the way that the Jews actually ate the Last Supper. In fact, this wasn't the way that the Jews ate usually at all. This, they would recline to eat. And what that means is that there would be a low table or a small or a low set of tables, and there would be cushions or couches that were situated around the table, and each guest, each diner, would actually lay down, prop himself up on one arm, and then reach with his other arm to grab food or to take the food that he had grabbed and dip it into common bowls. I'll show you some some pictures here. You might be thinking of Leonardo da Vinci. That's the kind of traditional way of thinking about it. That's the way we would, we would eat today. That's not the way they did it. It'd be something more along these lines. So you've got people reclining about the table. There could be one central table that has all the things on it and there are people, the disciples are fanned around it with, as Jesus is, or it could be a series of tables set up probably in a U shape. In this way, the diners would actually be propped up against one another, which is what makes sense of John's description and his account, where he says that the apostle himself, John, was laying against Jesus' breast. That's only possible if people are reclining to eat. That's a Jewish way of eating. And the Jews weren't the only ones who did this, but they were one of them. This is a more relaxed and intimate way for people to eat than maybe we would do today. And certainly what they what they ate was shared in common. They weren't using cutlery like we would today. It was, uh, it was different. So we want to make sure we have the right image of what this Passover meal would have looked like. Now I'm going to go back to the previous side that has uh, our observations. Okay, now this is the Passover meal. What is it that the Passover exactly commemorates? Very good. So the last plague, and right before the people are delivered from Egypt, was God striking down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. But to make a distinction, it's that God would not strike down the firstborn of the Israelites. He required that they would slay a lamb or a goat that was unblemished, year old, and male, and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of each of the Israelite houses. Passover was the commemoration of this event. And really, Passover then was a celebration of two 
truths. First, it was a celebration of deliverance from Egypt. The people were in bondage. God brought all these plagues. And the culminating plague, the climactic plague, was this striking down of the firstborn. And through that, the people of Israel were finally delivered. Pharaoh finally let them go. And they were free. On the one hand, Passover celebrates freedom, redemption. But on the other hand, Passover celebrates the mercy of God. The mercy in God sparing the firstborn of Israel and not bringing judgment on them. Something very interesting about the 10th plague, and I can't remember if we said this exactly when we went through the plagues in Sunday school, talking about the Exodus, but it's interesting that the 10th plague is the only one where Israel was required to do something in order to be protected. We might ask, why? Why were they asked to do that in the first place? This wasn't something that God required for the other plagues. And just even more generally, we might ask, why was it that the Egyptians had the plagues come upon them? Why did God send plagues against Egypt? Right, so that's one of the main reasons Pharaoh would not let them go. Roy, were you going to say something else? Yeah, this was for their disobedience and evil against God. Not only in Pharaoh refusing to let them go, but also the oppression that they had worked against Israel for hundreds of years, for decades at least. They had enslaved, they had oppressed, they had tried to uh, kill all the Hebrew babies, and then they wouldn't let them go. This was a judgment against Egypt. All of these were judgments against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and against their gods. So if that's the case, then why would Israel need protection in the 10th plague? I mean, if Egypt is being judged for evil, why does Israel need protection? Is it that the angel might get confused, the angel of the Lord, as it strikes down the Egyptians, and it doesn't know that it's actually striking down the firstborn of Israel? Now, that can't be the reason. What must have been the reason that Israel needed the protection of the blood of a lamb? Yes, Danny. I believe, yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. That's the only reason why they would need protection. It's that the angel of the Lord was coming to strike down an evil people, but Israel was evil too. And that's, that becomes immediately apparent as Israel leaves Egypt, actually even before. They need some sort of um, blood. They need some sort of substitutionary sacrifice so they won't be struck down. So their firstborn won't be struck down. So Passover is also a remembrance of the mercy of God. That God did not send judgment on Israel, even though Israel in its own way deserved judgment. And we see the same theme in the rest of the law and indeed in the rest of the sacrifices, the burn offering, the sin offering, the offering on the day of atonement. They're all emphasizing Israel has sin. Israel is sinful and needs atonement. It needs the blood of a substitutionary, innocent, unblemished sacrifice in order that God's judgment may not come against Israel because God is holy and he cannot endure unholiness. So Passover is also a remembrance of that. Now remember Passover and the associated Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of three feasts that Israel was required to celebrate every year. It's given in the law. 
every male was supposed to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover uh, each year. And Passover had to be celebrated in a certain way, according to Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16. Some of the stipulations included that the families partaking in Passover, which should be all Jews, they had, were to have no leaven allowed in their homes. Remember, leaven is fermented dough. It's what would cause bread to rise. You were to have no leaven and at all in your houses. You were to slay an unblemished male lamb or male goat at the temple. You wouldn't offer it at the temple, but it would be slain at the temple. And then you'd bring the animal back. You would roast the meat. And there would be none left over in the next day. And you'd serve it to the family or to whomever had gathered together. And you would serve the roasted lamb or roasted goat with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And this was all to bring back to mind exactly what Israel experienced when they first celebrated this meal, when God delivered them and when God had mercy on them. Now, these were the stipulations according to the law, but there were more traditions added to the Passover celebration by Jesus' time. Indeed, these traditions still exist today. Some of the extra traditions included the addition of four cups of wine to the Passover meal. Four cups of wine mixed with water. Remember, all wine was mixed with water virtually back then. And each of these cups, which was served and drunk by the participants, was symbolic. The exact symbolic significance is somewhat debated today, but we can roughly understand what each cup represented. Juice for Jesus breaks down the meaning of each of the Passover cups in this way. The first cup was the cup of sanctification, the idea of holiness. The second cup was the cup of plagues. The third cup was the cup of redemption or blessing. And the fourth cup was the cup of praise or the cup of acceptance or the cup of Elijah that is looking forward to Elijah's coming and the coming of Messiah. So all of these were to be brought back to mind and uh, remembered when the wine was drunk by the participants. Now, these background details on the Passover are very helpful for us understanding the different details of the text that appear in our passage. So you've got the scene in your minds. The disciples are reclining around this table. Everything's been prepared. They're eating this Passover meal, the roasted lamb, bitter herbs, the other things. The cups of wine, or the, the wine is there. They're enjoying that time together. They're talking. And all of a sudden, verse 21, Jesus makes a startling announcement. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, we've heard Jesus start off statements with truly before. Often it's truly, truly, I say to you. And he always says that right before he's about to say something that's going to be a little bit hard to believe. And that's what he says here. He's never mentioned before that someone, or at least directly, that someone within his own group of disciples would betray him. But he does so now. And this would have taken the disciples aback. How could this be true? It's not that Jesus is lying. Jesus doesn't lie. Who could betray Jesus after all he's done for them? These are the 12 disciples. They were called specifically by Jesus. He taught them. He gave them extra teaching that he would, wouldn't even give to the crowds. He walked with them. He lodged with them. He ate with them. He did miracles before them. He saved their lives in the storms at Galilee. He used them as ministers. They went out as, as his proclaimers and proclaimers of the kingdom. He's having the Passover meal with them now. Who would betray Messiah after all of this? 
after all the good that Messiah has done. This is a terrible, terrible revelation. And it says in verse 22, the disciples were deeply grieved. And they asked themselves, could it be me? Could I be the one that Jesus is talking about? Surely not, right? And they even asked the Lord, hoping and trusting that Jesus doesn't mean them. But Jesus goes on to clarify. He says in verse 23, He who dips with me in the bowl, he is the one who will betray me. Okay, what is the significance of that phrase? Well, we don't know the specific table arrangement of that Passover meal. It's possible that Jesus was sharing a bowl with just one other person, and he could be pointing out that disciple. Or perhaps he's sharing it with a few people and just narrowing it down, or maybe he's sharing it with everybody. And so he's just saying it's one of the disciples. Nevertheless, sharing a bowl is a sign of intimacy and trust. Indeed, eating with another person, especially in that day, was considered a sign of intimacy and trust. But sharing a bowl, even more so. I think we still have the same concept today, to some extent. We eat family style. That's considered a more intimate way of eating. You're actually sharing the different dishes. Or to, to dip uh, into the same bowl with somebody else, especially the double dip, that's not something you do with people you don't know very well. It was the same idea back then. Jesus is saying, someone so close to me has to dip into the same bowl. He's the one who will betray me. But then Jesus goes on to announce a contrast about this person. It says, the Son of Man, remember, Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses for himself often. It's a title of Messiahship, connotes deity. It says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written of him, just as the Old Testament, just as the prophet said. But woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. Now, what does the word woe mean? Sorry, can you say that again? Yes, it is a word of judgment. Roy, you're going to say something. Yeah, you're right, actually. Uh, you have some more knowledge about the term. It is where the phrase oy vey comes from. It does come from the Hebrew word for woe that's translated woe. And yeah, it's an expression of um, calamity, an expression of judgment, an expression of warning, an expression of lament. You remember that that's something that Isaiah says in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he sees God in his temple. He says, woe is me. I am destroyed because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and I'm an unclean man. I dwell with unclean men. And so Jesus says, woe, warning, judgment, calamity, lament on this person who betrays who betrays the Son of Man, it's better for that one if he had not been born. And we can understand the implication of that phrase. He's saying the judgment on such a one will be so staggering. It'd be better if you were never born. Now, Jesus clearly knows who the betrayer is. He announces it. And as readers or as those listening to this account, we know too, because earlier in the passage, we've seen Judas has gone to go betray Jesus. But this was known even earlier in the gospel account. When Judas Iscariot is first introduced in Matthew chapter 10, he's introduced with the description, Judas, the one who would betray him. It was always known to the Lord that Judas would betray him, that Judas Iscariot would betray him, and he knows it now. 
And yet Judas innocently asks in verse 25, surely it is not I, Rabbi. But Jesus tells him, you have said it. That's a roundabout way of saying, it is you, Judas. Now, interestingly, the disciples don't seem to understand Jesus' statement. And what the other things that Jesus does to indicate that Judas is the betrayer. Because according to John's gospel, John chapter 13, verses 28 to 30, they don't understand what Judas is doing when he leaves. They suppose that Jesus had given him some sort of mission to buy food for the Passover or to give money to the poor. And so when Jesus or when Judas Iscariot leaves, they don't think anything of it. But Judas, he leaves to go arrange Jesus's arrest and apprehension. But the Passover meal continues, though it continues with some alterations. And this is extremely significant. At verse 26, when Jesus passes out and breaks and passes out the unleavened bread, that was a normal part of the Passover celebration. He then says, take, eat. This is my body. That's not a normal part of the Passover meal. Luke twenty-two nineteen records Jesus' words in this way. As he passes out this unleavened bread. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, you are to eat this bread. Eat this unleavened bread that he gives to them. And then in verse 27, later in the meal, he takes a cup. He gives thanks. Or he gives thanks. And then he gives it to the disciples. Now, this is probably the third cup of the Passover. A third cup, which is also the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption. And he says to his disciples, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Again, this is not a normal part of the Passover. But Jesus makes this announcement. Now, pouring out blood, what is that an expression for? For a person to pour out blood or to pour out his blood, that is an expression that means what? It's death. In fact, in Hebrew, the word for pour blood or shed blood, they're the same. The same word is used to, is, is translated both ways in the Bible. It's the idea of death. And Jesus says, this is the pouring out of my blood of the covenant. The covenant? And then he says, it results in forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins? What are you talking about? Luke 22, 20 says it this way. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Ah, new covenant. What Old Testament verses should come to our minds? Ezekiel does say something about it, but this phrase specifically, new covenant, appears in a different prophet. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Actually, hold your place in Matthew and turn back to Jeremiah 31. Let's refresh our minds what that passage said. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Many Old Testament prophets spoke about this new covenant. Even Moses did in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But the phrase new covenant appears in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Ah, so we've seen this passage before, right? But recall what's promised in this new covenant. God says, I'm going to give my people a new heart. I'm going to cause my people to actually be obedient. And I will forgive them for their sins. All of this comes in the new covenant. And all this in total contrast to the old covenant, where Israel did not get a new heart and therefore was still sinful and disobedient and was not forgiven, but received condemnation. Jesus is saying something in this cup, in this announcement about his blood being poured, about the new covenant. And then verse 29, we get a surprising addendum to all of this. Jesus makes another announcement. We're back in Matthew 26 now, so you can jump back over there. Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I will not drink of, the, of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this should be striking to us for several reasons. First of all, <laughs> Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this vine anymore uh, until a certain thing happens. And that's, that would catch his disciples a little bit by off guard because drinking wine was pretty necessary in that society. That's what you drank with each meal, wine mixed with water. <clears throat> the water by itself was not good to drink and would often result in stomach issues. So you're not going to drink any wine anymore, Jesus? And drinking wine was a necessary part of the Passover celebration. So you're not going to celebrate Passover anymore, Jesus? How could this be possible? The answer is, of course, because we know it's coming, that Jesus is going to die. And for that reason, he's not going to drink anymore. He's not going to drink wine anymore. Until something happens. And then here's the next part. He says, though, he will drink wine again with his disciples. So even though Jesus is making an announcement about his death, he is also announcing that though he dies, his disciples will what? They will see him again. And they'll drink wine with him again. And then the third striking aspect is when and where that's going to happen. When will they see Jesus again? When will they drink wine with him again? In his Father's kingdom. That means the kingdom of God is still coming. The disciples are going to be part of it. And they're going to drink the fruit of the vine together with Jesus when God's kingdom comes. So some pretty, pretty amazing promises. This is where Matthew's account of the conversation inside the upper room finishes. It says in verse 30, at the conclusion of the meal, they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. Now it was traditional at this time for the Jews to end the Passover celebration with the singing of the Hallel, which is a section of the Psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. So they may have sung all of those or chanted, recited all of those, or maybe just the, the last one, 118. 
There's also a tradition to sing the great Hallel at the end of Passover, which is Psalm 136. That's the psalm that where every other line is, for his steadfast love endures forever. So they sing and go to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is just east of Jerusalem. Jesus often went there. And there's a garden at the base of the mountain that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, we've made our observations of the text. Let's move to the second step, interpretation. And we have some very important things to explore about the Lord's Supper in particular. When Jesus said, this is my body, and this is the cup of the covenant in my blood, was Jesus being literal or metaphorical? He was being metaphorical. Now, how do we know this? Yeah, the most basic thing we need to know is that Jesus was sitting right there. His body and blood was actually still making up his body, and that's why he was alive. So when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, he must be speaking figuratively. We could add to this that Jesus, when he, when he makes those statements, Luke tells us, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So there's a memorial or figurative aspect of what Jesus is saying. This is true also the original Passover. It was about remembrance. But as we said, the most important aspect is that Jesus' body and blood are right there next to the table. Jesus' body and blood can't be in two places at once. And whatever is true of this first instance of the Lord's Supper must also be true in the other instances. So Jesus is presenting figures or symbols to his disciples. Let's make sure we understand the significance of what Jesus exactly is communicating in each one of these symbols. Jesus gives his body, that is the bread, and his blood, that is the wine, for the disciples to eat and drink. Now, why normally does someone eat or drink? It's for nourishment. It's for the sustaining of our lives. It's so that we can grow and continue to live. Also, when we eat or when we drink, what we take into our bodies becomes part of our bodies. Though the, the, the part of it is, is uh, excreted as waste. By taking in these symbols, of what are the disciples testifying about Jesus? If you think about what food and drink do, and Jesus says, this food and this drink, this is my body and this is my blood, by taking it in, what are the disciples essentially testifying about Jesus? Right, both of those things, both of what you just said. On the first hand, on the one hand, they're saying that Jesus is the one who gives me life. He is the one who saves me. Jesus' life and death specifically are what give me life and even give me forgiveness of sins. Just as food and drink sustain a person and give them life, Jesus' body and blood is what gives me life. That's what they testify. But also, the second thing that was said is that they identify themselves with the Lord in union. Just as uh, bread is taken in and in a sense becomes one with the body. So they're saying, I have become one with Jesus. And this is just like what Jesus said in John chapter 6, 
Remember John chapter 6, where Jesus announced himself to be the bread of life. And he says, he who believes in me and he who eats me, remember those are synonymous in that passage. Uh, how exactly does Jesus say it? He says, um, I can't remember the exact language, but I will become one with him and he will become one with me. I will be in him. Oh, that's how Jesus says it. I will be in him and he will be in me. Now, you don't become part of food whenever you, whenever you actually eat food. So this is a little bit different. Jesus says there is union based on your eating me. So they are testifying both of Jesus giving life to them and saving them, but also in Jesus becoming one with Jesus. Jesus is putting forth these symbols, and that by eating and drinking, the disciples are testifying of, of salvation reality related to Jesus. Now, which has the life-giving power? The symbols of the bread and wine, or the reality, Jesus' body and blood? The life-giving power comes from the reality, not the symbols. There's no life-giving power into the bread and the wine itself. It's the reality that they represent. Jesus is the one who gives them life. It's his body and blood. This is important for us to remember. And the disciples probably didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying here, but they would later. In fact, Paul, he explains in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord's Supper is indeed a gospel symbol. It's one of the two ordinances given to the church, a rite or a ritual that testifies about Jesus' saving sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this. 1 Corinthians 11.26. Paul says of the Lord's Supper, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper, this which was experienced by the disciples first here in the Last Supper, is a testimony of how Jesus provides salvation just as food provides life and how the followers of Jesus become one with him. But there's more to it. There are several layers to the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, and we want to make sure we, we note each, because all of this is laid on top of the Passover. How is the Passover related to the Lord's Supper? Well, consider the Lord's Supper, or we could say it in this way, the Lord's Supper takes the realities that are memorialized in the Exodus a whole new level. Because in the Passover, the Israelites were celebrating freedom. Freedom from Egyptian bondage, freedom from the tyranny of Pharaoh. But in the Lord's Supper, indeed in the salvation of Jesus, the gospel, believers celebrate freedom from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the tyranny of death. This is a much greater freedom. Similarly, in the Passover and in the original Exodus, the Israelites celebrated the mercy of God in sparing judgment. The judgment that was spared on them was the death of their firstborn on one particular night before the Exodus. This was mercy from God's wrath, a sparing. But in the Lord's Supper, in the salvation that Jesus provides, there is a much greater act of mercy from God. Believers, all of those who trust in Jesus, are forever not just one night, but forever spared from the wrath of God, which was due them because of their sin. And by a much greater means, 
Originally, the Passover, they were spared on the basis of the blood of one unblemished lamb or goat. But for believers in the Lord's Supper, they are spared on the basis of the unblemished sacrifice and blood of the lamb of the Son of God himself. And isn't that what John the Baptist said? John the Baptist, when he spoke of Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the atoning Lamb. And the act of mercy shown us through Jesus' atoning sacrifice is much greater than the act of mercy that was shown to Israel in the original Passover. Indeed, the Exodus realities were grand. The original Passover was grand. But in comparison to what Jesus accomplishes, the Passover, the original Passover, is a pale foreshadowing. The much greater deliverance, the much greater passing over, is to be celebrated by Jesus' disciples. That is what Jesus is presenting and really inaugurating in the Last Supper. So we must, so there's the layer of the Passover on on top of all this, but then there's another layer, because Jesus makes an announcement about the new covenant. He says, this cup is, or This cup has my blood of the new covenant, which results in forgiveness of sins. So by saying that, what was Jesus announcing? New covenant was promised. Jesus says this cup is the blood of the new covenant. What was Jesus essentially announcing? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, the new covenant has come. The new covenant that had been promised, all those things in the Old Testament that God had promised, they've come. And they've come in Jesus. He's the one who is inaugurating and mediating the new covenant. And all the benefits that were promised in the new covenant are now going to be the benefits of those who follow Jesus. They receive new hearts. They become obedient to the Lord. And they have total forgiveness from sins. This is way superior to anything that the Old Covenant offered. And Jesus says, it has now come, and it's come through my blood. Now, I say inaugurated rather than fulfilled, because the New Covenant has not been totally fulfilled yet. We read back in Jeremiah 31 that that covenant was offered to Israel and Judah. And it says that all of them would be saved, so that nobody even has to tell each other to know the Lord. That has not yet happened. It will happen, according to Paul. All Israel will yet be saved. But it has. the New Covenant has been inaugurated. The first fruits of the new covenant are already evident. The remnant of Israel and Judah has been saved, but also the Gentiles have been mercifully grafted in. The Gentiles become beneficiaries of the new covenant that is inaugurated and mediated by Jesus. So we see the Lord's Supper is not only a celebration of the gospel, but we can attach to that. It is a celebration of a greater passing over. It is a celebration of the inauguration of the new covenant. But then there's another layer, a layer of future promise. Because the Lord's Supper is not just a testimony about life now, but also about future life. There's an ultimate fulfillment to the Lord's Supper. And what is that ultimate fulfillment? It's exactly what Jesus promised. One day I will drink the fruit of the vine together with you in my Father's kingdom. So then, the Lord's Supper is a preview. It is a testimony to the future banquet with the Lord. 
if you belong to Jesus, if you are one of his disciples, if you trust and believe in him, then that's where you're headed. When you take part of the Lord's Supper, you are testifying, I'm going to go banquet with the Lord. And not just me individually, but all of those who trust in Jesus with me. It's a communal preview. We're all looking forward to the banquet. When you at Calvary celebrate the Lord's Supper together, or whenever you're in a Bible-believing church celebrating the Lord's Supper, you're in a sense doing a previewing banquet. You're all going to be there again with Jesus when his kingdom comes, celebrating with him. Now, consider these realities. Who could have ever thought of these things? Who could ever have conceived? Who could have ever earned or deserved a place at the banquet of the Lord? God has provided one for you and me because of our faith in Jesus. We approach the table of the Lord like Mephibosheth approached the table of David. You remember Mephibosheth? He was the grandson of Jonathan, lame in his feet. Because he was from the house of Saul, he expected nothing good from David because the house of Saul was at war with David. But David, because he loved Jonathan, he wanted to show kindness to Mephibosheth. He said, you eat at my royal table from now on. Mephibosheth was dumbfounded. He says, what am I? I'm a dead dog to my king, to my lord, the king. Why should I deserve such grace? It's a good analogy for us when we think about coming to the table of the Lord. I don't know exactly what that banquet's going to look like, but Jesus testifies that it's going to come. And because if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be there with him. He's promised that. So there are many glorious realities all being celebrated, all being declared in the Last Supper and in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate in commemorance of the Last Supper. So think on these things, my brothers and sisters. Think of these grand realities. You did not deserve this. You don't deserve this if you believe in Jesus. You deserve to be struck down, just as Israel deserved to be struck down in the original Passover. Your sin was just as bad as Egypt's. You were not without sin before God. His holiness could not stand you. You did not reach God's standard. But God, in his own grace, because of his own love, because of his own mercy, he gave you salvation. He sent his son, Jesus, to be your greater Passover, your greater Passover lamb. He brought you into the new covenant. He gave you a new heart. He forgave your sins. He gave you new life in union with Jesus, and he has secured you a place at his table in his coming kingdom. Did anyone conceive of a God such as this? God so gracious. This is not the kind of God the world comes up with. The world comes up with a God who either winks at sin or who has man come up with some way to earn his salvation. That is not the God who is. The God who is does everything himself in his own mercy, for his own glory. But we, who have believed in Jesus, are the beneficiaries. There is one more element to consider in all this. It's also really, really kind of cool. Did you notice that Jesus establishes this right, commemorating his sacrifice and salvation that he achieves before he's actually sacrificed, <laughs> before Jesus actually dies? Jesus has not been sacrificed as a Passover lamb, and yet he's given this ordinance to commemorate it. This is just what God did also with the original Passover. 
If you go back to Exodus, don't do that now, but if you go back and look, God tells Israel how to celebrate the Passover before God actually does it. He says, this is going to be a memorial for you throughout all your generations. This is the way you've got to celebrate it. He does it before he actually brings the deliverance. What's the point of doing that? By telling the people how to celebrate the memorial before the reality actually takes place, it is God showing. Yeah, Roy, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think you both said it. This is a testimony to God's complete sovereignty, foreknowledge, his ultimate power. He says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen beforehand. And by the way, here's the way you're going to celebrate it after it happens. God's in total control. The Lord is in total control. Jesus is in total control, even in his arrest and crucifixion. We see some elements of that even in this passage, how Jesus knows his betrayer, and he's able to announce that. But also in his announcing of the realities of this Lord's Supper, the Lord is totally in control. He has total authority. And this goes right along with what the gospel writers have been wanting to show us all along. If he has such authority... Even in his own death, who must he be? If everything is proceeding exactly as Jesus foretold, exactly as the scriptures foretold, exactly as God planned, then who must Jesus be? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the only Savior. And he is the one that you must believe in if you want to be saved. We'll see more of this next week as we see more of how God's sovereign plan was coming to pass. But we even see it now. Jesus is the Messiah. He demonstrates total control and authority, even in his own arrest and death. So let's sum up what we've seen today. We see, I just said some of this, but I'll say it one more time. Jesus knew Judas' plan to betray Jesus, and he knew the wrath that was due on Judas because of it. We also saw that Jesus transformed the rite of Passover to the Jews to a profound symbol of multiple grand gospel realities. And that Symbol is something that Jesus has given to the church to practice continually. We've also seen that Jesus' followers, they give testimony to these realities every time they partake of the right. Not only that those realities exist, but indeed that they are partakers in that reality. I am going to be at the Lord's banquet. That's what you testify at the Lord's Supper. I am in the new covenant. I am. I do have a greater Passover lamb who has delivered me. That's what you do every time you partake. Let's consider more specific application as we come to the third part of our Bible study method. A couple questions here. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that those who come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And in that church, some people even got sick and died. Why is God so serious about the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Yes, Steve. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. It is a representation of the body and the blood of the Lord, really a representation of the whole gospel. The realities are so grand. The Lord himself is so grand that to treat this memorial 
in an irreverent way, a hypocritical way, or a mocking way, it's not something that God is going to allow. God will not be mocked at this Lord's Supper. Therefore, if you come at it in an unworthy way, that is, if you use the Lord's Supper as an occasion for sin, as the Corinthians did, or if you contradict the testimony that you're declaring at the Lord's Supper by saying, I follow Jesus, I'm in the new covenant, I'm obedient, I'm going to be at the banquet with him, when really, you don't follow the Lord, and you, you risk, you recklessly risk the chastisement and the judgment of the Lord upon yourself. Realities are too grand for you to treat the Lord's Supper lightly. In a way, however, it is not the Lord's, it is not merely the ritual of the Lord's Supper that we need to be sober about. It's really the whole Christian life. The whole Christian life is, in a way, a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Paul alludes to this earlier in 1 Corinthians. Whenever he's speaking about how there's immorality in the church, which the church is tolerating, flagrant immorality, he says this about it. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see what Paul's saying? Your whole life is a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Your whole life ought to be unleavened, and indeed the whole life of the church. This doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but that we don't we don't allow sin to reign in our lives. Nor do we allow, nor do we tolerate unrepentant sin in the church. Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We must respond appropriately, or else we hazard the holy chastisement of God. Another thing to note here, always important to mention when we talk about the Lord's Supper, since the late Middle Ages, the Catholic Church has taught the doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation states that in celebration of the Lord's Supper, which they call the Eucharist, the bread and the wine or the grape juice, they literally become the body and blood of Jesus, though the bread and wine continue to look like normal bread and wine. Catholics also teach that the Lord's Supper is a presentation of sacrifice by the priest, Jesus being offered again on behalf of the participants in the Eucharist in order to keep them in a state of grace. Why is this understanding biblically inaccurate and dangerous? We're running low on time, so I will provide the answers to you. This is not correct. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. His literal body cannot be in more than one place. He is human. He's forever human, though he is also God. So his body cannot also be in the bread, or his, his body cannot also be the bread and blood. They were not the bread and blood originally when he inaugurated the meal. They are not afterwards. Moreover, Jesus has accomplished a once and for all sacrifice on the cross and does not need to be sacrificed again. If he does need to be, then his work was not sufficient. Christians already have full salvation, full justification by faith in Jesus, and we do not to obtain, we do not need to obtain um, something in the Lord's Supper to keep us in a state of grace. We do obey it, we do obey the ordinance of the Lord's Supper as Jesus commanded, but it is not um, it is not necessary to keep us in a state of grace or salvation. Just a couple other things I want to mention. Judas betrayed Jesus, and Jesus said it would be better for Judas if he had never been born. 
But Jesus is not, Judas is not the only one for whom that description is accurate. There are others who, from a personal perspective, it would be better for them if they had never been born. And really, it's anyone who refuses to believe in Jesus or who believes and then falls away. We know the writer of Hebrews says, if those who received the previous revelation from God in the Old Testament were judged based on their obedience and appropriate response to it severely, how much more we who have received a great, a greater salvation, who have received the revelation of an even greater salvation. So we cannot neglect this salvation. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? You do not want to be found in the same place that Judas Iscariot was. I don't mean this all to be super sober and serious. There's, along with that sobriety, there's also great gladness. Because of the realities that we've explored today, the realities that Jesus declared in the first inauguration of the Lord's Supper, our lives, and especially the celebration of the Lord's Supper that we do in church, ought to be one of the most joyful things that we do. Because in it, we proclaim all that Christ has accomplished. We proclaim our union with him. We proclaim our life and salvation in him through his through his death, we proclaim what we will experience with Jesus in the future, and we proclaim this together. We say we have come to this common salvation. It is all a preview of what is to come. So look forward to the next time that you get to celebrate the Lord's Supper in church, but also celebrate in all of your life your Passover lamb. Now that's it for this week. This week. Next week, we'll talk more about how God's sovereign plan was unfolding and all the things that were happening at Jesus's and what led up to Jesus's crucifixion and even afterwards. Let me close in prayer. Oh, I should say, Lord willing, I will see you in church next week. You won't have to do the live stream. I'll be there in person since we'll be coming home uh, on a little bit of a vacation. Let me pray. My Lord and God, we thank you for the incredible realities that are declared in the Lord's Supper. Our great God, thank you. Thank you that you've given us a place at your table forever. We didn't deserve that honor. We didn't deserve even to be have a place in your house, a place in heaven. But you brought us into an honored place. You seated us right at the table. God, this is more than we can understand. Comprehend how you could be so gracious to each one of us who were so loaded with sin. We can think back to any of the all the sins of our lives, so many. And you hate them all. You hate sin. And yet you showed love to us. God, thank you for being so gracious. I pray, God, that we would share this grace with other people. Even over this Christmas season, we'd be telling others about what a wonderful Passover lamb has been provided and that they too can be saved if they will only believe. I pray, God, you make us bold, fill us with the love so that we will do this. Fill us with the grace towards others, but also the boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll see you guys.